Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earth 2 podcast. The podcast explores the origins and development of the DC Comics multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters through the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. I'm Gavin Rizza. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. And a special welcome to Gavin Rizza. Hello, Gavin. Hello. Hello. Are you well? I am. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Gavin's a friend of the show. He's helping us out this week because we have arrived in the 1970s, which means it's the first JLA-JSA crossover of a new decade. And with a cast of thousands, Peter and I probably couldn't manage it all ourselves. Well. Um, yeah. So Gav's given us a hand. Thank you, Gavin. Uh, my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we start the 1970 JLA-JSA crossover, and it's not really a team-up as such this time, we have a bit of correspondence to deal with that concerned the last JLA-JSA team-up. We certainly do. We've had an email from Caitlin Higgins. Hi, Caitlin. And Caitlin asks, When I was listening to Where Death Fears to Tread, I wondered about something. Black Canary gets stuck to the ground by Green Arrow's sticket shaft, but they're in space, so there shouldn't be any ground. They're also all running around and falling onto the ground. But what ground? Did they get transported somewhere that isn't the middle of space or something? We shall never know. Caitlin makes an excellent point because after mm. you know, the email arrived at Earth 2 Podcast Towers, I had a look back at the issue and it's yeah. right. I mean, it goes from them all sort of floating and then the bubble dissolving yeah. to them setting foot in some kind of surface. Yeah. But we don't really see where they are. It's like those stories where someone becomes intangible, but they seem to still walk on the ground yeah. and walk through walls, but mm-hmm. they still use the ground as their base. It's, it's almost as if there's an unknown universal floor that always has yeah. to be used. I mean, I remember when in the 90s when Grant Morrison and all that had the Flash, had Wally running through mm. space at mm-hmm. points, and they said something about cosmic super strings or something it was running on. Maybe it was something like that, but Caitlin ah. has made an excellent point. In yes, a way, Kay, you. you've kind of ruined the story for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, but no, it's true. Ruined or enhanced, you know, because um, now we've got no, this well, whole Grant Morrison aspect. It's, it's an excellent point, though, because if they were floating in space, mm-hmm. then Canary probably just would have got covered in gloop and wouldn't have been you know, stuck to the floor. But I don't know, did did Aquarius create some kind of level platform for them all to fight on or something? I think he did. That sounds like a very Aquarius thing probably. to Probably. Yes. It's probably the easiest sort of answer for it. And the only way, frankly, that we'll get any sleep tonight. So, Caitlin, thank you for raising that one. We hope you're going to pay extra special attention to this story, see if you can spot any obvious flaws in that one, and flag them up in case we miss them, and then we'll have a little chat and think about what they could be, probably when we do the next JLA, Jason, (laughs) which I've already started planning the bonus content for, but that's just the way my brain works. So, issue 82 of Justice League of America, published on the 11th of June, one week before Paul McCartney's 28th birthday, listeners, which ties into a recent episode, which I hope you enjoyed. We certainly did. The 11th of June, 1970, it's our 21st Neil Adams cover. Hey! And Peter's going to tell you all about it. Well, it's got a big banner at the top, the usual Justice League of America shield. It's fantastic. The world's greatest superheroes. Down the left-hand side, we have the roll call of the Justice League, which is Superman. Batman. Flash. Black Canary. Green Lantern. Atom. Green Arrow. And we see some heroes and they're in peril. In the foreground, we have the Earth-1 Flash Barry Allen, the Earth-1 Superman and the Earth-1 Batman, and they're all writhing in pain. It kind of looks like they're busting a move, doesn't it? It does, (laughs) yeah. It looks like they're getting down. Severe air guitar from Superman there. I'm going to be putting a guitar emoji onto that picture of Superman and sticking it in the, the Instagram story at one point. Listeners, just you wait for it. And behind them on a screen, we see the Earth 2 Flash Jay Garrick, 
who is coiled in some sort of energy net, and he's in exactly the same painful position as the Earth-1 Barry Allen flash. Behind Superman, we see the Earth-2 Superman, and again, he's coiled in pain in a kind of energy net, and he's in exactly the same position as the Earth-1 Superman. And behind Batman of Earth-1, we have the Earth-2 Doctor Midnight, mm. who's coiled in some sort of energy net, and he's in exactly the same position as the Earth-1 Batman. What could possibly be happening? And the Earth-1 Superman is saying... Whatever is crushing the Justice Society on their Earth is doing it to us on our world! Crikey. That really sells it. It's a beauty. I really mm -hmm. like it. Mm -hmm. but obviously, it really looks like Barry is doing a Jimi Hendrix-style fretboard <laughs> behind the neck, sort of. And Batman just looks like he's out. I mean, I don't want to say what it looks like Batman's doing, quite frankly. <laughs> it's very interesting. The, the Doctor Midnight-Batman parallel thing there is something we'll talk about once we've done mm -hmm. the story. It's very, very interesting. So, Gav, do you like the cover? I like it very much. Oh, good, I'm glad. <laughs> right, we shall leap into the story. Our opening panel has an opening caption that says... Metropolis, Saturday afternoon, one of those summer days that puts peace in the bones and laughter in the blood. Laughter in the blood sounds like the name of a Nine Inch Nails B-side or something, maybe? A Weird Al Yankovic Bob Dylan album? If you think so. Peace in the Bones certainly sounds like a Weird Al Yankovic Bob Dylan. Anyway, our opening panel shows three small boys. One's got a newspaper under his arm. I wonder if they're actually some kind of newsboy legion. Who can say? Mm. Another's got a comic rolled up in his back pocket because that's what you're supposed to do with them. You're not supposed to wrap them in plastic and never read them. And the little boys, well, they're pointing up to the sky. The first little boy says, Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. Ah, stupid. Don't you recognize Superman when you see him? He must be going to visit his friends at the Daily Planet. And sure enough, we see Superman flying through the air, hurtling towards the familiar Daily Planet building, that skyscraper with the globe at the top with Daily Planet written on it. Inside the newspaper's city room, reporter Jimmy Olsen is putting the finishing touches on a feature story. He looks up and recognizes his friend and idol. A Superman peers through the open window. Jimmy looks around and says, Superman, hey, good to see you. And then he says in the next panel, Watch out, the wall! And the Man of Steel keeps going. There's a crash as he basically goes right through the wall and out the other side. On and on, the Man of Steel plummets through walls and a steel transmitting tower. The final panel, page one, there's a fish sound effect as Supes collides and breaks the aforementioned steel transmitting tower. Now, I have a transmitting tower. You'd probably be surprised to learn. And because it's mine, it's also a steel transmitting tower. Of course. Soups continues on his almost rampage in the first panel of page two. And a parked truck. And the pavement. And finally, his momentum exhausted comes to rest on subway tracks. Yes, all sorts of drama with frooms and blashes and a final flop as he lands on underground train tracks. A couple of chaps stand looking down at him. One of them looks so he probably works for the railways, looking at his cap. He says, Great! Is he sick or something? I don't know. We better contact the Justice League. Fast! In the foreground of that panel, we see Soup's lying, seemingly unconscious. Within minutes, a message is broadcast to a satellite circling in fixed orbit 22,300 miles above the United States, the home of the far-famed Justice League. And this is the grim beginning of an adventure that will span universes and endanger the human race. The whole of the human race. People of two worlds know that your like may soon be gone unless the mighty Federation of Heroes can conquer the... 
Peril of the Paired Planets. Amazing. Tiny captions tell us the stories by Denny O'Neill with art by Dick Dillon and Joe Giella. We arrive at the top of page three. Barely an hour after Superman's sudden inexplicable plunge, his co-Justice Leaguers Hawkman and Flash carry his limp form to a hidden Thanagarian relativity beam unit. And a full moon looms in the background as we see Hawkman and the Flash carrying Superman across the rooftop towards the aforementioned transmat. Which whisks him to the orbiting JLA command post, then in the central laboratory... Suits is stretched out on a very fancy-looking electronic sort of table. The Flash, Hawkman and Batman stand around him. The Atom stands on top of the machinery, a bit more close to the prone Man of Steel. The Flash says... Not a trace of kryptonite. Any sign of organic disorder, Adam? All systems read zero, Flash. If that's so, we should be able to revive him, says Hawkman. Batman says, But we can't. We've eliminated kryptonite as a cause of Superman's sudden sickness, and he's not near a red sun. Those are the only natural things that could affect him. Therefore, by simple process of elimination, he was struck by the supernatural magic. Oh, come on, Batman, says the Atom. Magic? That's not exactly probable. Not probable, perhaps, but... Certainly possible. Remember, just about a year ago, we tangled with the Chthonic demons. And a footnote reminds us of issue 72 of JLA, which I don't think we read, did we? Nope. That's all right then. Listeners, if you feel inclined, you can go and look it up. Batman continues in the final panel of page three. And there was... was... And he suddenly stops. He raises his hands almost up to his throat. It, his mouth's wide open. He looks, well, looks like he's being choked. Hawkman says... Batman, what's wrong? And the Atom chimes in with... Looks like he's... Strangling! First panel of page four, Hawkman and the Flash lift Batman's prone body and lay him down beside Superman as the Atom says, Get him on the table, quick! I'll energise the bioanalyzer. So, Batman's all hooked up to the machine in the next panel. Ray's looking at the readings and he says, Respiration and metabolism near minimum. No external wounds, says the Flash. And no evidence of poison, says Hawkman. In the next panel, the Atom continues, First Superman, now Batman. What the devil is going on? Maybe Batman's razor-sharp logic could have made sense of it. Yes, maybe, but let's face it, this is beyond the three of us. With Batman and Superman disabled, we need help. All we can get. I'm contacting Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Black Canary, cancelling the leaves of absence immediately. I'm see Hawkman crossing to a fancy microphone on the equipment desk beside him. He's operating a switch and a footnote tells us... The reasons for the trio's absences have been related memorably in the July 1970 issue of Green Lantern. Which issue is that then? I don't know. That's the start of Hard Travelling Heroes, yes. Interesting. And Hawkman says, as he leans into the microphone in the final panel of page four, I only pray that they can come up with an answer. Hawkman's prayers are in vain, for the answer he seeks lies a universe away, on an alternate plane of existence, in the reality where superheroes are joined as the... Justice Society of America. Excellent panel showing a globe of the Earth. Radiant glow all around it. It's very, very effective. It'd have been nicer if there'd been two Earths side by side. Mm. Maybe we'll get <laughs> something similar later in the story. Who can say? Um, the captioning continues. Twin Earths. Twin galaxies. Twin realities occupying the same physical space, yet separated by a gulf more vast than mere distance. Each atom and electron, each proton and neutron, vibrates in harmony with eternal cosmic rhythm, and although the evolution of the twin universes is merely parallel, they vibrate differently. 
Thus, time is slower on Earth too, and its inhabitants will reach mankind's ultimate destiny, or ultimate doom, 20 years later than the creatures of Earth 1. That's very specific, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Obviously, it's, Peter's delighted that Denny Neal has given him so much to say on this issue. It's quite good. It gives me a bit of a break, to be honest. It's good. That little caption obviously relates to the sort of acceptance that Superman of Earth 1 and Wonder Woman and mm. all that sort of developed roughly at this point, 20 years after their, yeah. their Earth 2 counterparts. I like that. Some more captioning. Vast though the gulf is, it can be breached, and has been. Every 12 months, the temporal matrices of the Earths come together briefly. For 21 days, superpowered men and women can cross to the other existence. Can and have. So, the Justice League and Justice Society have often met and teamed to fight extraordinary menaces which have threatened both. And we get a lovely panel running out page 5, which is basically a bit of a flashback as opposed to the events of JLA 29 and 30. Batman punching out Owlman and Wonder Woman punching out Superwoman. And a few other heroes hanging around here. I'm not sure we're actually in that story. In the background we can see <laughs> Hal Jordan's Green Lantern and Starman flying along with Superman and Dr. Fate. We also mm-hmm. see Hawkman, the Barry Allen Flash, Alan Scott, Green Lantern, Dr. Midnight and Our Man. I'm not sure they were all in 29 and 30. No. I can't quite remember. No. It's so long since we did that one now, actually. Very true. Yeah, because it was on Time Hop the other day. It was two years when we took the photograph of us wearing the power rings. <sighs> so that's nice, isn't it? There's a bit of bonus content for you <laughs> listeners. As the podcast develops in real time, we arrive at the top of page six now. There is one, however, who is not quite a member of either group. Of any group, because he is not human. Not quite. No, it's not the Seventh Doctor, sadly. It's blooming Red Tornado. Oh, no! Can't stand Red Tornado at this point in his career. Sorry, I'm opinioning. (laughs) This is a nice panel, though, of Red Tornado and his twisty legs flying through space, as he's saying. This is where the Red Tornado belongs, in the cold of space where nothing lives, including me, who'd say a robot is alive. Certainly not the Justice Society. Oh, they're kind enough, like they'd be to a lost puppy. I've got superpowers, intelligence, everything except humanity. One thing I wish I didn't have, emotions. Oh, chin up, lad, it could be worse, eh? He's the ultimate cheer-up goth. His flight through space is arrested in panel three because he's come across a very well. What does he say here? Huh? A spaceship? And it didn't come from Earth. It must be invaders. I wish he said it must be the invaders. Ah. But sadly, <laughs> that crossover's yeah, never going to happen. Still a few years away. Yeah, let's try and describe the spaceship. There's a big sort of red ring. There's a central structure. There's some wings. It's all kind of stuck together. It looks like the sort of thing that you might have made out of a couple of hair dryers and a couple of bits of shower rail for season three of Blake 7. Reddy flies up around it in panel four of page six, saying, Oh boy, this is my chance. I'll single-handedly stop the aliens, then everybody will have to like me. Then the final panel of page six, Reddy is struck by a burst of pink energy which comes from the spaceship. He cries, Yay! And then a voice from inside the spaceship says, We have halted the attacker. Excellent. Bring him aboard. And then we're inside the vessel in the first panel of page seven. And we get a look at Reddy's captures. They have blue skin, little antenna, weird eyes and huge open mouths. Quite scary. They wear sort of pink reddish robes. In the first panel, Red Tornado is being pulled in through an airlock. One of the aliens is saying, It appears to be a thinking machine creator too. Excellent. We may make use of it. Subject it to the Vibrex. We don't see creator two at this point, but we'll see him in a couple of panels. 
Panel two, ready, seemingly unconscious, or as unconscious as a robot can be. He's lying in front of a bit of fancy-looking scientific equipment. The alien above him is saying, Incredible, Crater 2. The double rhythms already exist. We need make only the slightest of alterations. Need I say, excellent? Do so at once. The next panel, the alien is, well, it looks like he's unscrewed the top of Red Tornado's head. This is really disturbing. Mm-hmm. He's holding it up almost like he's holding up a, a basin, like as if he was Oliver Twist asking for more. And we get the first proper look at the person he's talking to. Crater 2 wears blue robes, high collar. He's a large blue, bald, domed forehead, blue skin, very distinct wide features as his hands clasped in front of him. The alien with the antenna, his lackey, says, Explain to this lowly servant, Crater 2, what hope we to accomplish? As you know, we have a contract to build a new planet to our client's specifications. To do this, we must build our own elements. And to do that, we must release tremendous amounts of energy. Indeed, so much energy that we need destroy two planets to accomplish it. My instruments show that two proper-sized worlds coexist in different dimensions here. We need but bring them together, bridge the vibration separating them, and the collision will destroy both and give us our energy. Final panel of page 7. The alien is poking about inside Ray Tornado's head. This is horrible. Might stick out in the socials. It's pretty cool. Alien says, and how may we accomplish this? By attuning a being to both sets of vibrations. The thing you have before you is already attuned. In the first panel of page 8, we see the alien sliding just what looks like a metal panel into the openness of Reddy's head. It's very <laughs> disturbing. It kind of suggests that there's nothing actually in mm-hmm. Red Tornado's head. I don't think about that too much. We'll see <laughs> if any other Red Tornado stories in the future contradict this. Perhaps may get a cutaway schematic. Crater 2 continues. Simply put the harmonizer plate within it. So I have Crater 2. That's obviously what the that metal plate is then. It's the harmonizer plate. Take it to the transporter. So this apprentice is doing. We see him starting to move. Reddy's body. In the final panel of this little sequence of three at the top of page eight, you see Reddy being cast out into space as Crater 2's voice from inside the spaceship says, And set the coordinates for a spot exactly between the dimensions. Caught in an eddy between the void occupied by Earth 1 and that of Earth 2, like a magnetic drawing them closer and closer, the red tornado rests, an unwilling, unconscious instrument of certain doom. This is another cracking panel, just ready in the void being surrounded by jagged blasts of yellow lightning. Very, very effective. So, first panel of page 9 now, listeners. Meanwhile, back at Creator 2's ship... Yes, we can see about half a dozen of the antennaed aliens all standing as Crater 2, who's not really, it seems, physically in the room. He's surrounded by sort of golden aura. It could be a projection or maybe he's just disembodied. It's very odd. But he's looking at a very big television screen. As he does so, he's saying, I foresee only a single possible difficulty. There exists a number of natives with extraordinary powers. They know themselves as the Justice Society. 
I have thoroughly scanned them and discovered their individual weaknesses. Yes, this big picture on the telly. That famous, is it a Dick Dillon drawing of the JSA on one side and the JLA on the other that was published you know, about a year or so that ago? Time. Remember that mm. one? It shows the assembled members of the Justice Society. Significantly, we don't see Black Canary, but we do see Superman, Batman, right? This is supposedly Batman of Earth 2, and we can see that there's a yellow oval around this chess symbol. Gosh. <laughs> so Perhaps he tried it out mm, once or twice. I don't know. Mm. I don't know, but it certainly blows the edges for some of the Brave and Bold stories we're doing yep. at the moment. The next row has Our Man, The Flash, Wildcat, Missile Terrific, Johnny Thunder, Not Wearing a Bow Tie, Starman, Doctor Fate, we then see Red Tornado and the Spectre, and down the front, Screen Lantern, The Atom, Wesley Dodds, The Sandman, Wonder Woman, The Robin of Earth 2, Doctor Midnight, and Hawkman. Creator 2 continues in the next panel. I have incorporated countermeasures in these web snares. You need but use them in the normal way. Yes, and what we see hovering in midair between Creator 2 and his little alien lackey. Well, as Pete described in the cover, it's a form of energy net. Certainly some netting. It's glowing with a yellow aura. And there's little bits that sort of stretch out from it. They look kind of weird. I think we're going to get a bit of an explanation for them, though. The alien is saying, Why? asks this humble mendicant. Will we need them? Possibly. Because five of you must journey to the planet's surface and plant these matrix correctors in specified places. These will ensure the proper type of explosions when the barrier sunders. We get a closer look. It's almost like a weird sort of fungal jellyfish mm-hmm. that is on a sort of tendril coming out of the main body of the the energy net. It has little hands of its own and it looks like it's grasping a very small little green bottle. It looks like something that was wrapped around John Pertwee in, in, in Spearhead from Space, perhaps. It's, no, it's the sort of thing that you would see a giant version of in the, the sort of end papers of an early 70s Doctor Who annual. Yeah, and a drawing yeah. of John Pertwee would be sort of coming like this. <laughs> so miming listeners, you'll have to picture it for yourself. Mm. Anyway, panel four. The five tasked alien lackeys are flying from the spaceship, each bearing one of the energy nets. And created whose voice comes from inside, saying... Go now, faithful and goodly workers, and speed you well. Even as the aliens swoop into the night sky, Superman, bearing the mysterious Dr. Midnight, hurls toward the metropolis of Earth 2. This is a great panel. I wish we saw more images of superheroes on the commute. Dr. Midnight says, Thanks for the lift. Anything to oblige a fellow Justice Society member, and anyway, your base is only a thousand miles out of my way. It'll only take four seconds. And that long because you don't dare go full out with a passenger. Superman looks up in the first panel of page 10 and he sees the five aliens from Creator 2's spaceship flying down. Man of Steel says, Invaders, my telescopic vision shows extraterrestrials descending through the atmosphere and the trajectory of one will put them in a city just below us. I'll leave you here to wait for him while I go after the others. It's a great panel showing Superman and Doctor Midnight alighting in a very messy alleyway. There's a dustbin at the front if you took part in the dustbin lid drinking game when we were doing the Spectre a few months ago. You can take a drink. (laughs) Dr. Midnight says, Okay, I'll see you soon. Panel three, we see Dr. Midnight walking towards a telephone booth. Kids, you might not know what a telephone booth is. Ask your parents, ask your grandparents. And as he walks towards this now defunct form of communication, the doctor is thinking, Never a dull moment. It may be some time before the bug-eyed monster or whatever it is arrives. So I'll enter this phone booth. And not to change my clothes, but to call the Justice Society's answering service and alert the rest of the gang. 
And we see Dr. Midnight lifting the receiver and putting a coin into the slot, which is something that we all used to do back in the olden days, kids, but you probably never have to. Amazing. There's a caption for the final panel of page 10. While Midnight dials, Earth 2's Action Ace closes with Creator 2's Sly Servant. Yep. Soups flies up towards the alien and its antenna with the net stretched out. And as the alien spots Superman flying towards him, it thinks, As the Master predicted, a Justice Society member seeks to apprehend me. I'll permit him to get a bit closer. Now, I loose the specially treated snare web. And he throws the net towards Superman, who's flying towards it, arms wide open. And he says, it's apparent you've never been to Earth before. Or you'd know a silly collection of threads can't hold hold me. And he struggles because the net has wrapped itself around them. And the little fungal jellyfish type guys on tendrils are starting to swirl around them. And as a golden flash, as the energy net surrounds Superman... And drops like a stone. Yeah, we see him plummeting earthwards in the next panel. And then in the next panel, we see it's completely crashed into the pavement. There's a sign in a building behind him that says Ard Company. I'm not sure what that means. But this panel is sort of split in two. We see the Superman of Earth 2 lying flat on the pavement, as I've just described. But then we also see the Superman of Earth 1 lying in the subway tracks like we saw earlier in the episode. And a big caption splits this and says... Already the barriers between the worlds are crumbling, and an event unforeseen by Creator 2 occurs. Earth-1 Superman suffers exactly the same fate as his Earth-2 counterparts. Thus, his sudden sickness is explained to us, but not to his worried companions. We arrive at the top of page 12. Several hundred miles away, Dr. Midnight watches another extraterrestrial ease to the filthy asphalt of a back street alleyway. Yeah, it's a bit disturbing to find that after he's used the phone box, Dr. Midnight has gone back into the alleyway. I'm not going to speculate on what he's doing there, why he's hanging around alleyways in the middle of the night, who can say. But he does see the alien alighting, and he thinks, Superman called it exactly. There's my new playmate. He doesn't look tough, but we'll see. The next panel. Dr. Midnight has walked up behind the alien, put his hand on his shoulder, kind of friendly-like, and he says, Pardon me, you've hopefully come on a peaceful mission, and I'll be happy to release you as soon as you explain. But the alien turns on Dr. Midnight with a zock, punches at him, sending the doc falling backwards. Dr. Midnight thinks, So, he isn't peaceful. Fortunately, he isn't rugged either. Not a bad punch. About as good as a Golden Glover's second best haymaker. A Golden Glover's second best haymaker, that definitely sounds like a Springsteen B-side, doesn't it? Yep. It's like some <laughs> kind of metaphor for the collapse of the you know, the Midwest industrial section. I don't know. Definitely. Your thoughts may vary. <laughs> Dr. Midnight retaliates. This is, I'm, I'm loving this. It's very real that we get Dr. Midnight in action. So this is pretty cool. He has to sell those action figures exactly. somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> Chuck kind of fights back in the next panel with a, a fantastic punch sound effect. He sends the alien flying into some more dustbins. Take a drink. There's a clang as the lids go flying. Take another drink. And as the alien goes down, Dr. Midnight thinks, I'm somewhat advanced for the amateur class, though. Continuing the boxing chat, the alien seems to be slightly recovered in the final panel of page 12. Dr. Midnight stands over him saying, You're down, and I'll be delighted to put you out, if you insist. The alien, with its net casually prepared out of Dr. Midnight's line of sight, thinks, My lord, creator too, programmed my web snare for these annoying natives, as the braggart shall soon learn. And he hurls the net towards Dr. Midnight in the first panel of page 13. Dr. Midnight says, How? And he stumbles backwards thinking, I've been suckered good. I can see perfectly in the dark. My eyes are natural infrared lenses. And with my goggles, I can see in normal light. 
Panel two shows the net colliding with Dr. Midnight, starting to wrap itself around them and a little fungoid tendril geyser looming as well. Chuck continues to think, But that thing's radiating ultraviolet, blinding me, and wrapping itself around my windpipe. And he falls backwards in panel three, colliding with a couple of dustbins. Take a drink, listeners. Can't breathe. Can't stay conscious. Page 13 is rounded out by two panels, split down the middle by a wiggly caption. We see Dr. Midnight collapse backwards in the act of trying to remove the net from round his neck. And we see Batman in a similar pose. And the caption says, Again it happens. Dr. Midnight's closest Earth-1 equivalent, the Batman, falls victim to the unseen grip of the snare net. <laughs> Dr. Midnight's closest Earth-1 equivalent sounds like the name of a craft beer, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, is it the usual? Yeah, give us a pint of Dr. Midnight's closest Earth One equivalent. That's the Earth Two uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts yes, Club Band uh, title. Um, <laughs> I could talk for hours about the, the Batman Dr. Midnight thing, but we'll save that for later in the mm-hmm. episode. We mentioned him a lot, but our Twitter pal, Multiverse Historian, I want to know what he thinks about this, frankly. Yeah. So if you're listening, and I wish we knew your real name so we could use it, if you've got any thoughts, any articles about this particular pairing, please share them and we'll retweet them and we can all have a think about it. So, we arrive at top of page 14. Even as the valiant doctor collapses, however, the flash blurs onto the scene. Yes. Making his first appearance in what seems like ages, it's only blooming Jason Garrick. Fantastic. Zooming up to this alleyway, he sees Dr. Midnight on his back with the net around his neck, the alien standing over him, a couple of scattered dustbins, take a drink, and as he arrives on the scene, the Mercury helmeted speedster thinks... The answering service said the doc was here, a mere nanosecond trip from my lab. And there he is, being whipped. I'll slow down till I scout the situation. Uh Uh-huh. As doc told the service, an off-worlder. Jay has spotted the blue, weird face, and he's got a proper good look at him here. He is grotesque with his antenna and his weird snarling expression and his weird pink cloak. Jay continues to think. Don't know exactly what he fights with, so I'll toss some confusion his way. And the next panel, Jay extends his arm as if he's going to shake hands. Greetings, friend. Want to be taken to my leader? And the alien thinks, Another Justice Society. And I have no more weapons. And the next few panels are terrific as Jay runs rings around the alien, making him dizzy. As he does so, the Flash says, Pardon me, you're looking in the wrong direction. I'm behind you. That is, in front. I mean on the left side. Right side. Back, front. Love that. Found panel on page 14. Not only for the fact that Jay's boots are yellow. It's a little colouring thing that happens every so often. I think it just looked good. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> the alien gets exasperated in the first panel of page 15 and says, Stand still, please! Jay's not having it as he zooms around. But we realise in this point, they're actually being watched on a screen by Creator 2, who's still sort of floating in midair on his spaceship. And he has a microphone and a cord, which is very interesting. So either it's karaoke night on his spaceship... Or he's not quite as powerful as we thought. He still needs technology to communicate with his slaves. Very interesting. Creator 2 is saying, Attention, Nugget and Caramel. Your brother Kashu is having difficulties at planetary coordinate XX909 3rd 20th. The next panel shows the aforementioned Nougat and Caramel, who must be a couple of the aliens, flying through the air, and Creator 2's transmission coming through in the radio receiver that one of them's carrying. We hear his voice saying, Proceed to his assistance immediately. To hear is to hasten, splendid moulder of environments. We return to the Flash, 
panel three, page 15, as he punches out the guy we now know is called Kasu, and with a quop sound effect, he goes flying as Jay says, Now that I've got your little head spinning, I'll stop it, as you stop Dr. Midnight. Panel four, the Flash is down on his knees beside Dr. Midnight, reaching towards him, and he thinks, The duck's pulse is still strong. Apparently that glorified spider web is keeping him in dreamland. I'd better not touch it until I find out. In the background, we see the other two blue aliens arriving, zooming down towards Jay, each of them carrying an energy net. One of them cries, Attack! Jay whirls in the next panel, thinking, More off-worlders, and they want to do unto me as they did unto Midnight. Indeed, we see one of the aliens unleashing the energy net, and Jay takes these heels and final panel on page 15. He runs off with the energy net, following him. Flash is thinking, I'll be darned, the net is chasing me. Okay, I haven't had a real workout in years. First panel of page 16 shows that Jay's actually been chased by two of the energy nets. He thinks, The other net's gotten into the act. If they were alive, I'd say they were trying the old squeeze play. I can't shake them. Jay takes drastic measures in the next panel. So I've just vanished by vibrating between the molecules of the pavement into the underground conduits. And we see, as he vibrates into the ground, that the two energy nets collide with each other. Jay's thoughts continue as he re-emerges in the next panel. And out again. Looks like my would-be captors are all wrapped up in each other. It's a terrible pun, but we see the engine nets down on the ground. Hey, he seems to have stopped them so far. He continues to think in the next panel. A bit of hasty wall hopping puts me in range of Pug Ugly's pal. And in a very, to me, it seems Johnny Quick style move. It looks like he's run up the side of the building, mm-hmm. using his momentum to hurl himself even further. With a quack, he punches out Mars Bar or Milky Way or whatever he was called. And then Jay thinks, the third one's too high for this stunt. But I have lots more, like, for instance, spinning fast enough to cause a violent downdraft. Should suck him within fist range. But then something odd starts to happen in this panel. Jay starts to turn and turn and twist around to create the downdraft that he's talking about. But then another figure seems to appear through a pink haze beside him. Jay thinks, Huh? What now? Some sort of spook forming a spook that looks exactly like... Exactly like the other Flash. Only he's half-materialised. I wonder if we can communicate. Yeah, sure enough, there's a kind of ghostly version of the Barry Allen Flash taking form in front of Jay. Jay has successfully made it back to the ground in the second panel of page 17 and tries to talk to his Earth-1 equivalent, saying, Flash, Barry Allen, can you hear me? See me? Then he thinks, No answer. Is this a trick or an hallucination? Jay hasn't been paying attention. A caption says, So engrossed is the scarlet speedster that he does not see the snares untangle and glide swiftly toward him. Until... Yep, the energy nets with their weird fungal tendril guys have caught up with Jay and started to wrap themselves around them. He thinks, They got me. Can't loosen them. As the strands tighten, the air around the struggling hero shimmers and all colour drains from him. You see Jay struggling with the energy nets, then the caption continues. Exactly as it drains from his otherworldly alter ego. And we see the Flash of Earth 1 reacting similarly. Then the final caption for page 17 says. And with the same dire results. Barry turns a funny colour and pitches forward. Pages 18 and 19 are definitely going in the socials. It's a big double spread showing at the heart of it, Red Tornado, still surrounded by a burst of energy. A caption says, Elsewhere, on both planes of existence, wraith-like figures congeal, shimmer. As the dimensions brush together, people momentarily glimpse duplicate selves they never knew existed. And a fear chilling as a tomb grips them. And we see across the two pages... 
four vignettes basically sort of repeated people on payment basically just sort of seeing themselves there's a woman in green who sees herself with a slightly different haircut there's a guy in a purple suit who sees a version of himself with a slightly different haircut and moustache and a slightly different shade of suit there's a guy in a hat in a brown suit seeing a slightly different version of himself and there's another guy with sweat back green hair in a blue suit who sees his obvious parallel off replica and then a closing caption on page 19 says while in the center of the impending disaster a motionless red android sleeps and visits destruction upon five billion human beings. Yep, the harmonizer plate which they stuck in Red Tornado's head is obviously having the desired effect. We arrive at the top of page 20. The vibration matrices are nearly aligned. Within 24 of the local hours, they will lock, and I shall have the energy release I need with no loss to the civilized universe. Yep, we're back with Crater 2 on his spaceship. He's looking at a screen which has some wibbly-wobbly stuff on it. I don't know if it's supposed to be the two Earths being split by a void. It's not very clear. But he has a blue antenna lackey with him who says, But the living creatures, oh splendid Creator 2, will not they be lost? Certainly. However, I have studied their history. A chronicle of war, slavery, brutality, ugliness. Surely civilization loses nothing from the destruction of such barbarians. He's got a point, quite frankly. Very moody shot of the creator too. They're looking very, very, very scary. Wouldn't want to meet him on a dark night. There's a caption for the next panel. Even as Creator 2 blithely dismisses the whole of humanity, a group of the barbarians meets. Yes, this is a very interesting panel for a couple of reasons. We see the assembled ranks of the Justice Society of America, minus obviously the folk who've been taken out. So I'm going to start going clockwise from the bottom right-hand corner of the panel. We see Dr. Fate, that's the terrific, Green Lantern, Wildcat, our man, complete with his back to us, What's supposed to be the Atom, but he's been miscolored as Starman. Ah. Hawkman, wearing his sort of yellow cowl helmet with no wings. Am I right in thinking this is the proper debut of the Earth 2 Batman? <sighs> Actually, it's the first time we've seen him in the JLA JSA story, isn't it? It's the first time in the JLA JSA. Because we debated yeah. in the mm-hmm. in the Sergeant Rock story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. About, you know, yeah. decided mm-hmm. it probably was. Okay, so it's the first JLA JSA. But this is the first yeah. contemporary, mm-hmm. present day appearance of the yeah. Earth 2 Batman. Interesting. Check your mm-hmm. price guides, kids. Sat next to him is the Golden Age Sandman, standing behind him is Starman. Johnny Thunder's there, so is Wonder Woman, and so is the Spectre. We haven't seen the Spectre for a few weeks. It's nice to have him back. Starman is saying, As I see it, we have three problems, Johnny Thunder says. Right on, Starman. We gotta locate Duck Midnight, the Flash-O, and the ever-loving Soupy. Exactly, Johnny Thunder. Dr. Midnight's message sounded urgent, says Wonder Woman, and the Spectre contributes. Then we must battle whatever attacked them and find out the cause of those illusions people are seeing. Dr. Fate replies, One moment, Spectre. Has it occurred to you that the visions may not be illusions? Johnny Thunder replies, Oh, come on, Dark Fate. I mean, what else? That I cannot answer, but we should not dismiss such phenomena without investigation. I like the little halo they've given Dr. Fate there. It makes him look slightly... Impatient mm-hmm. towards Johnny, it's very yes. effective. As Mr. Terrific looks on. Yes, Mr. Terrific is behind Dr. Fate at this point. He looks very serious, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. He's, he's obviously... He's contemplating his lines for later. He's, he's thinking deep thought. He's thinking, who's going to do my voice in this comic and who's, what kind of accent are they going to give me? He's terrified at prospect. He's thinking, who's my Earth One equivalent? Yeah, yeah, because we never got a... I don't know. I'm sure 
I'm sure that multiverse historian, another shout out for him this week. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he has postulated in such things in the past. I'm ah, sure I've read okay. something about a kind of master of all things sort of interesting equivalent. I can't remember who he said. You'll have to tell us again. I wish I knew your name. Anyway, how cool to see Batman and Our Man of Earth 2 together in a story for the first time since one of the early issues of All-Star Comics. Yes. Just saying. Very true. You know, just Very saying. True. That's the first time we've seen Mr. Terrific with the Batman of Earth 2. Yep. Ever, probably. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's really, mm-hmm. really interesting. Mm-hmm. Anyway, panel 2, page 21. Starman's did enough of all this chat. As the other JSAers look on, he flies off, saying, You investigate away. For me, action. I'm going to hunt up our missing pals. A slow dissolve. While in the secret sanctuary of the Justice League... Yeah, we're back on the satellites. Hawkman welcomes Black Canary, Green Arrow and Green Lantern, safely returned from their sojourn into the real world via Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill. Hawkman is saying as they arrive... What kept you three? I sent for you nearly six hours ago. Green Arrow replies... Well, pardon us. Can I do anything to square myself? Brush your wings? Shine your beak? Green Lantern interjects. Save the sarcasm, Green Arrow. We're getting our message by way of the Guardians and Oa these days. It takes a while. Speaking of which, you'd better have a bloody good reason for dragging us up here. This is a very perturbed Arrow, and Hawkman, who's not having any of it, replies, I have, Green Arrow. Superman, Batman and Flash have been mysteriously struck down. And the Atom continues... And I think I just doped out why. Final panel of page 21 shows the Atom standing with a big paper printout from a computer and he's saying, I've been feeding data into the computer, including the day, month and time, and those news reports we've been getting about ghosts appearing. The answer is Earth 2. Something pulling it into our dimension or vice versa. Green Lantern replies in the first panel of page 22. Your theory is easy to check, Adam. The Guardians temporarily restored my power ring to full strength so I can cross the gulf and see what's what. Very obliging of the Guardians Mm -hmm. to completely disregard what's happening in his own book and do whatever is necessary for this Justice League story. Well, Denny's writing both, so it's fine. Yeah, it helps. It's kind of like when they tried to reconcile what was happening in Torture with Doctor Who and didn't quite. Anyway, (laughs) the next few panels show Green Lantern out in space flying around the satellite investigating. And as he does all this pirouetting and tumbling around in space, he thinks. It feels good to do this kind of thing again. Fly through space, command nearly limitless power. The whole superhero bit, but I can't forget that my commitment is to the injustices on Earth. And if I have to pay for that commitment by relinquishing much of my ring's capacity, so be it. This is where the gap between dimensions should be, but it's not. Yeah, we see him projecting a big beam from his his ring through a sort of purpley pink cloud. Obviously, everything isn't what he's expecting. I can't get through. The force of my power beam is cut into pieces like light in a prism. Yeah, and this is probably the issue that gave Jeff Johns all his ideas, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Um, will be, maybe will be. I would have three less tattoos if it hadn't happened. Anyway, we see indeed, as Hal says, his light beam all being filtered out into other colours. He then continues. I can only guess that the dimensions are so close they're touching. And somehow, the gap has been plugged. He thinks that as he flies back towards the satellite. And after Green Lantern tells his story... Back inside the satellite, Hawkman, Canary, Arrow and Green Lantern looking very glum. I must just mention though the preceding pages. Full advert for a giant life-size moon monster. That and lots of other stuff's free when you join the Monster Fan Club for one dollar. So there you go. I'd buy that for a dollar. It's over six feet tall. 
Listeners, did you join the Monster Fan Club? Please write in and let us know. Peter will tell you how to do that later on. So Mm -hmm. we're back inside the satellite. Everyone's standing in line. The Atom's standing in front of his printouts again. And he's saying, I've been playing around with the computer readouts, trying to make sense of them. Understand, nobody's written a book yet on this stuff. The effects of dimensions on each other. But if I had to make a stab at an answer, I'd say there's some link between us and Earth 2. In the foreground of panel 2, page 23, we get close-up of Black Canary looking very... Very thoughtful, as she says, I don't understand. The Atom continues, With our biggest gun, Superman, out of action, we're in trouble. In fact, the worlds will collide in less than a day. There's nothing we can do about it except wait for the last big bang. Unless we can find and eliminate the link. Green Arrow says, No way of doing that. But Canary says, But there is. We know where the link is and who. You said it has to be something or some person common to each Earth, and we all know that only one person qualifies. Myself! I was born on Earth 2, lived there most of my life, but I've been on Earth 1 for almost a year, so my body must be the common factor. Green Arrow says, Do us a favour and stow the nonsense. That's not very nice, is it? The Atom says, Wait, I think she has a point. Hawkman says, Assuming Black Canary is right, what can we do? And we close this issue with a close-up. Black Canadian tears holding her head in her hands as she says, Isn't that obvious? I must cease to exist. I must die. And the final caption, JLA82 says, Thus the stage is set for a mistake. A mistake certain to cause the most monumental tragedy of all time. Will it come to pass? Only our next issue knows for sure. Gosh. The rest of this page is taken up with a DC house ad for All-Star Western and The Witching Hour. So that's nice. Gentlemen, that was JLA issue 82. Mm. Gav, what did you think? It, tremendous. The, the, the one thing that stuck out for me was just how unnecessarily uh, sarcastic and angry Green Arrow was towards the, the end there. I don't, know what's, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. He's in the huff, isn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even just to be, I mean, he's at this point, you know. He was enjoying his hard travelling. Yeah. Yeah. We've we've talked in recent episodes about the developing relationship between him and Black Canary, but um, if he carries on like that, he's going to get nowhere. <laughs> that was quite nasty the way he spoke to her. Perhaps there could be an alternate suitor for her coming up in a forthcoming episode. Yes, I wonder if her attentions will be taken elsewhere. Very, that's a mm. good point, Kitsy. Hmm. Mm. The only thing that, that stood out for me right from the start is it looks like Reddy has stolen Magneto's costume. <laughs> yes, this version does look quite yeah, similar. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. I wonder if that was one of the reasons why they changed it. I've said many times that I, I can't stand him at this point because it's just moan, moan, moan. Self pity. <laughs> sounds like me in my early 20s. Sounds like me full stock, quite frankly, but it's, he gets much more interesting when he gets the stripy trousers and the, the weird sort of, you know, arrow thing in his forehead. He becomes mm-hmm. much more interesting. My thing, main thing that I want to talk about is the that little scene of the GSA assembling. That was the first appearance, the first definite, yeah. unarguable appearance of the, the Batman of Earth 2. I know uh-huh. when we did Brave and Bold with Sergeant Rock recently that we yeah. debated and we agreed it's probably most likely yes. Batman of Earth 2, but that was his first appearance ever in a comic with Mr. Terrific, the first time we'd seen him in the same 
story mm-hmm. is the Golden Age Sandman mm-hmm. probably since the 1940s. So that was very, very exciting. The Atom was so excited he put on the wrong costume. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he put the wrong costume on to celebrate. Um, you know, the Atom, he's a, he's a weird fish. It's nice to see everyone all assembled, even if they all didn't get lines at this point. Yeah. Because there's a few of these guys we don't see very often going forward and all the team up. But I mean, it's undoubtedly him. He's sat there with his arms folded conspicuously. Mm-hmm. No yellow oval around his chest. The bat symbol's a lot larger and more defined. The ears and his mask are shorter than what we've by this point we're starting to see on the earth one batman so yeah. it's all very interesting it's very exciting because you know i think the, the first time he he crops up as that slightly speculative detective comic story we did ages ago mm-hmm. but it's nice to sort of see him it'll be interesting to see how often we see him going forward yeah the pin-up picture of the gsa is quite interesting because as you said johnny thunder who's always wearing a bow tie isn't he is actually wearing just an ordinary tie yes and bats as a yellow oval. Yeah. It's weird. Was it an artist's impression? Who knows? And we've got Red Tornado like right in the middle there, and basically he's the one that neither team really wanted. So Can you blame them? I don't, I don't know why he's there. <laughs> uh, maybe he just turned up and thought, oh, right, okay, let's just you might cheat him up. Let's just yeah. do this. Okay. Let, let him stand here. Yeah, mm-hmm. go on, you can stand mm-hmm. here then. God. Poor Reddy. Nobody likes him. The other thing I thought was funny and slightly distracting was the, the revelation that some of the aliens were called things like, was it Nougat and Caramel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Other confectionery centres are available. It's very funny, but I question, <laughs> why? <laughs> why? Um, I'm a bit, yeah, I was a bit, come on, Denny. That kind of breaks up the, is that just meant to amuse and divert? I don't know, but it's a bit. Just a joke, joke for the adults who get yes, it. Yes. Breaks up the drama a little mm. bit. Mm. As did Red Tornado's empty heads. That's freaky. Yeah. Genuinely freaky. Yeah. Because you think there'd be some kind of computer or something. Yeah. You know, like when they take, they open up Data's head in Star Trek and you see all these bits and stuff inside. Mm-hmm. But no, nothing there whatsoever. No. Nope. And Spectre turned up there without his Journal of Judgment in hand, which is the last time we saw him in Spectre yes. issue 10. Yes. We'll talk a little bit more about the Spectre's presence there when we do the next issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Makes me wonder how much of this was planned, is it, or was it just made up as they went along? <laughs> the uh, the twenty one days a year thing, that's unusual. We had, I think, we had a reference to that in the last one as well. Maybe not those exact that exact time frame, but there was a reference to a finite time where, yeah. you know, the dimensional barrier was weakened, so they could transfer over. But obviously, that doesn't affect people at Red Tornado or the Flashies who just travel across. Yeah, whenever. I mean, I'm sure I've got a memory of other stories mm-hmm. where they talk about that sort of thing. And that's why they have it explains why they have their meetings in the summer. Yeah, mm-hmm. because the vibrational barriers are weaker or something, so it's easier for them to cross over. Yeah. Something like that. I'm not sure. We'll need to wait and see or pay attention see if anything like that pops up. And the counterparts of citizens popping up is a, like a flashback to issues 46 and 47, the yes. antimatter man story. Yes, where um, the same thing happens. Yeah, which is pretty cool. I, I mean, I think I was moaning last time about how cosmic it all was without real mm-hmm. any real sense of the involvement for the yeah for the day to day people. But we should talk about who Doctor Midnight was paired with. Yes. Fascinating. Maybe there isn't a Charles McNider on Earth One at all. Even yeah. if he, even if he wasn't a you know yeah. costume I mean, hero. Yeah. That's you know? that's interesting. I mean, is he are they unique? Maybe it's because the uh, the Batman of Earth One doesn't have an Edinburgh accent. It could be <laughs> could be. <laughs> could be. Although yeah. <laughs> no, I mean it is interesting because I suppose on surface characteristics, they do have the heroes who operate at night and all that yeah. sort of thing going on. It's a shame there's never a Batman Doctor Midnight breathing the bold, actually. That would have been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. But it's interesting because we do see Superman, who's ostensibly the same guy, being affected. And we mm-hmm. see regular people in the street meeting their contemporaries. But also, maybe does this answer a question? Is there an Earth 1 Jay Garrick? Was there an Earth 2 Barry Allen? It's the, you know, their powers yeah. are... Or mm-hmm. the thing that links them. So maybe mm-hmm. that's an interesting thing to think about. It's the characteristics, mm-hmm. I think, 
The interesting thing about this is it does tie into all the conversations we've had recently about Earth One Wildcats and Earth One Vigilantes and such yes, things as well. Yes. I mean, this would have been a great opportunity to have shown <laughs> to the Earth One Wildcat out of the, the Earth Two Wildcat or yeah, the Two Vigilantes. Uh-huh. I can't remember his Wildcat in the assembled JSA. Yes, he is, right. That's mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have been quite funny to see the two Greg Sanders both going, oh, oh. <laughs> um, but maybe that, maybe when we write our DC comic, yes, we can, we can have write that. Elsewhere yeah. on, there can be a regular cutaway series called Elsewhere on Earth 2. Yep. When we show all these off camera scenes from the, the GLA JC <laughs> team ups. And we'd obviously have to meet our own counterparts. Exactly. Yeah. My counterpart has long flowing blonde hair. <laughs> Hopefully, if there's any justice in the cosmos. The last tiny point I'll make before we move on to the letters. Interesting that there's no actual meeting between any of the JLA and JSA proper. J is a bit of an image of a mm-hmm. flash, a vision of Barry, but mm-hmm. that's about it. It's just we see them all being affected, but at this point in the story, they haven't yeah. yet met up. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk more on that when we do issue 83. Excellent. Awesome. Right, now, the letters for this issue are from issue 86 of Justice League of America, JLA Mailroom. I shall read the first letter. It goes like this. Dear Editor, Notwithstanding the awful cover on GLA 82, right, well, I respectfully disagree with that, mm-hmm. right? Only Murphy Anderson seems to adequately fill a cover illustration of such small proportions. Ah, they're talking about the box thing, aren't they? Ah, of course. They're not liking that. The umpteenth Justice League Justice Society extravaganza was greatly handled. Now that he's shaken away all camp inclinations, author Denny O'Neill has been turning out some of the best scripts in comicdom. It's those little extra touches that chiefly determine the success or failure of a particular storyline. For instance, we readers have been clamouring for more of Red Tornado. Well, I haven't. And that's just what Denny's given us, Red Tornado, in his greatest, most meaningful role. A thing with a soul searching for a place to belong, who unwittingly becomes a dire threat to the world in which he momentarily had found sanctuary. And then there was that scene in which the JSA members who had not seen action in the story banded together to discuss the security of their fellow members. Gardner Fox never seemed wholly able to account for the whereabouts of missing JSA members. After all, they're not as active as their JLA counterparts. That's a good point, and I'm sure Mm -hmm. it's one that we've made in the past, Mm -hmm. wondering where everyone else was while this was going on. Mm -hmm. Welcome to was the sarcasm of Green Arrow, the beauty of Black Canary, and the outer space daring do of Green Lantern. By the way, Denny O'Neill has handled the Guardians of the Universe far more greatly than any of his predecessors. Ah, but what I enjoyed most about Peril of the Paired Planets was the aliens. For the past several issues, O'Neill has employed aliens, and I have loved them all. They are not just black and white caricatures or evil because they are aliens, they merely are aliens. The results of their culture is what threatens Earth. Our correspondent then goes on where he talks about how effective he thinks the aliens in the story are. He makes reference to a story called The Iron Standard by Lewis Paget. But because this is already going to be quite a long episode, we're going to cut this down a little bit. It does talk about how the aliens can't really be seen as good or bad. They're just indifferent to Earth's welfare. I think they are actually bad because they're basically trying to destroy two universes to build their own world. Well, two Earths. Yeah, only two Earths, well, not you know two I mean. it's, still going to have, it's still going to... Have, <laughs> it's still right, smart arse. It's still going to have quite a, a negative impact on two universes though, isn't it? Absolutely, We, we yes. always know in these things it always ends up both all universes being, being threatened. Anyway... Mm-hmm. The letter concludes, all things considered, I wish I could go out on a limb and predict that Peril of the Paired Planets will be acclaimed as the most favourably received JLA JSA spectacle yet published. I don't think it will. That's from Jim Vecchio, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Editorial response? Ah, if only the acclamations were so. But unfortunately, an occasional so-so missive hits us. As uh, so, says the editor. And our second letter goes like this. Dear Editor, "'Twas once a time when I would look forward to the annual Justice League Justice Society team-up with eager anticipation. Why? Because they were double-issue stories. 
Now I view them with mild abhorrence. Why? Because they were double-issue stories. The difference is in the change of connotation of the term double-issue story. Once it meant that a plot was so full of action that the author could not cram it all into one issue, now it means that a plot is so full of padding that the author cannot cram it all into one issue. Admittedly, Denny O'Neill is a good writer. He has injected personalities into the characters that he worked with. It's always the same kind of personality, sort of smug and sarcastic, but personalities nonetheless. And he's taken direct steps to realign superhero stories with their mother form, science fiction. Thus he couples realism with fantasy, which is kind of hard to do, besides sounding funny. And he has done a good job. He can think up exciting storylines as well as his predecessors ever could. His only problem is that he's a bit too glib in getting them into words. Take Justice League of America 82, for example. Why I'm saying, for example, that's what I started writing this letter about. The first four pages are totally unnecessary because they are recounted again later on in the story. So they were added for effect. I've always considered four extra pages of action in a story worth more than a four-page splash. Page five adds a few interesting points to the Earth 2 legend, but are irrelevant now. Maybe. Creator 2's explanation of why he is going to destroy Earth is needlessly drawn out, and his subservience manner of speech is cornier than it is original. The flight sequences are far, far longer than they should be, so that by page 23, the very foe has only begun to be defined by the heroes. Page 24 was reserved for the cliffhanger, thus one issue of the serial is gone with very little accomplished. The GLA and GSA haven't even teamed yet. I disagree with that slightly. Mm. Because all the peril's been set up. The, yeah. The interoff threat is there by all the, the normal, regular people in the street seeing yep, each other. definitely, huh? Three of the GSA have been taken out. The mm-hmm. whole other teams assembled to do this. Building up the drama nicely. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I would mm-hmm. refute the summer. A slow build. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Now a few words about the brighter side. O'Neill has taken the old taboo doll device, one of my favourites, and applied it to an unexpected place. Between Earths 1 and 2. This can be and is becoming the basis for a fascinating tale. But it can't stay that way because within the next 24 pages, a turning point must come in the rampage of the real menace, Creator 2. Another interesting point which may not be developed well enough concerns Creator 2's words on page 20, panel 2. I have studied their history, a chronicle of war, slavery, brutality, ugliness. Surely civilization loses nothing from the destruction of such barbarians. If his civilization is so peaceful that he can say such things about ours, maybe he can teach us a lot. True, he wants to kill us, but we're mere animals to him, and how much thought do any of us give to squashing an ant or setting a mousetrap, if only for our own comfort? I know that many people will be offended by being used so in such analogy, but that's my philosophy in a nutshell. I remain as unimportant as an ant. Bernard G. Williams, San Pedro, California. Well, I disagree with Bernard because I spent 15 minutes today like, trying to get a fly to go out my kitchen window without having to smack it, so I, I don't know. <laughs> Interesting points, Bernard, but I think we disagreed on some of them. Yeah, quite a few of them. Yeah. Mm. Pete's going to do the next letter. Yes, this is not quite as bad as uh, Bernard's, but let's see how we go <laughs> on. Dear Editor... These days, in the midst of the character revolution, when everyone in comics is finding riots and reality and everything that is not credible or relevant is discarded as trivial, Justice League 82 was a most welcome throwback to pure science fiction. I have nothing against relevance or depth of character. 
The recent GLA two-parter about pollution was well handled, especially by the Earth 2 podcast. It certainly was. Yes. And made for a most exciting story. And the reality of America's intolerance combines with hip-talking heroes to make the Green Lantern Green Arrow perhaps the most exciting comic magazine on the market. Some might say it's bringing in the Bronze Age. Hey, that's our commentary. There we go. But when these elements are mishandled, as they often are, they degenerate a story to at best poor, at worst disgusting. An example is the recent story of Snapper Carr's betrayal of the JLA, which all but destroyed an otherwise likeable character who had been with us from the very first JLA adventure. Now I have to pause there. Likeable character, Snapper Carr. I've never minded Snapper. <laughs> I loved him in the Tom Pyre Ironman series, but he was basically just Rick Jones and Captain Marvel, really, at that point, wasn't he? Yeah, he was the OG Rick Jones, really. Yeah. That's fine. Anyway, mm. back to the letter. But pure good science fiction, where we know and trust all the characters, where we let the author take us on a flight of pure fancy to anywhere from a sub-microscopic world to another universe, has returned to us for a half-story at least in JLA 82. At last again, we have a Gardner Fox type story where whole worlds are threatened with complete annihilation by a maddingly brilliant plot. But this time around, at the hands of a new crew, there are a few interesting differences. The artwork is not Mexikowski, and while solely a value judgement on my part, probably because I saw the GLA being born at the hands of Sikowski and Bernard Sachs, I have never quite felt that any artist team other than Sikowski Sachs was right for the GLA. Nonetheless, Dylan Giella do a credible job, and I enjoy watching Giella get better every time he sets pen to paper. Second, the characters all mentally competent for a change this issue are more enjoyable now under Denny O'Neill's direction. Gardner Fox's characters were not really characters at all, but rather superpowers. That is, Flash was nothing more than a person who could run at super speed, Green Arrow nothing more than a master archer, etc. Now though, when Green Arrow can sarcastically offer to polish Hawkman's beak, we know something has changed somewhere. I just hope GA doesn't get mad at the Atom someday and squash him. Mm. But the third difference between science fiction 1970—that sounds like a great show, science fiction 1970—but the third difference between science fiction 1970 and the science fiction Gardner Fox is that this cliffhanger really is a cliffhanger. With the recent rewriting of the rulebook concerning deaths, banishings, betrayals, and tragedies of superheroes, anything is suddenly possible. Black Canary might very well die next issue. Likewise, for all we know, O'Neill just might find it fit to wipe out the entire Justice Society and Earth 2 while he's at it. Well, I can only wait till next issue to find out the answer to these dilemmas and to be treated to another issue of straight imaginative science fiction. Now that Denny O'Neill has run most of the characters through some type of identity crisis, flash forward there, or neurosis or outright insanity, I hope that we can return to more of this type of imaginative travelling to other worlds. And that's from Edward Broderick from Arlington Heights, Illinois. Editorial response to that is, odd that you should mention insanity. Odd that you should mention ins- in identity crisis, as Peter said. Yeah. For next issue is Mike Frederick. Anyway, that's just talking about the next issue, not the one we're talking about. The final two letters in issue 86 are probably positive, and they both speculate on what might happen to Black Canary in the mm-hmm. next issue, given that obviously she has just recently transferred over to Earth 1. So that's probably the best point to leave this episode Indeed. do join us again next week we'll find out what happens in part two but before we do that of course thanks to Gavin for joining us Indeed, <laughs> yes thank you I do hope you'll come back next week and do some more voices <laughs> fingers crossed yes <laughs> Pete you've got a lot of things you usually say at this point in the episode don't you I certainly do now if you've enjoyed having Gavin on and you want to write him some fan mail you can email us at the podcast at gmail.com make sure you follow us on social media because we'll be putting up lots of bonus material for this and indeed every episode that we do on Facebook 
Facebook and Instagram. We're at the Earth 2 Podcast and on Twitter we're at podcast underscore Earth 2. Yep, be sure to check out the socials. There's not a huge amount for these ones. You might get the foreign covers if you're lucky. You'll get some panels, definitely. I'm really selling it. Anyway, the worlds are in peril. Black Canary fears the worst. What's going to happen next? Join us next week. Same bat time, same bat channel for... The Earth 2 Podcast! Transmatter cube activated. Return coordinates set for Earth Prime. A couple of chaps stand looking down at him. One of them looks so he probably works for the railways, looking at his cap. He says, Cripes! Is he sick or something? Could you make him American? Think American blue collar. I was thinking American, that's the problem. <laughs> Here we go. There is one, however, who is not quite a member of either group. Of either group. Of either either group. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> Thrumble nose. Sorry, I was doing absolutely there.